All right, Luke chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. Go ahead and read with me if you would. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you today for this beautiful message of joy, uh, a message of Christmas and how Christmas is to be a season of joy because it was at this time that you gave the very best gift, the gift of your son, who is for us the great light that brings great joy, joy that is exceeding. And today, Father, as we turn our attention to the subject of joy and what it means to have joy, we pray that it would find a home in our hearts and that you would cause it to uh, affect the way that we live our lives. And we pray it in Jesus' name and for his glory. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated. Wouldn't it be ironic to lose my cool when I'm getting ready to preach on joy? <laughs> you got to keep your sense of humor, don't you? <laughs> But our culture is a culture that is obsessed with happiness, preoccupied with happiness. We have hundreds of hit songs over the years that have the word happy right in the title of the songs. Of course, there are hundreds of self-help books teaching us on how to be happy. And then even movies with uh, titles like Happy Feet, Happy Gilmore, The Pursuit of Happiness. There's even a new subfield of psychology called positive psychology, which is the study of happiness. Companies that used to promote their product as being the best, the highest quality, or the cheapest price are now selling their uh, products or services or experiences as a way to experience happiness. Take Campbell's Soup, for example. There's a smile in every spoonful. Or Coca-Cola, they tell you buy a Coke and you open happiness. Or when you fly, now very few of us who fly would equate happiness to flying, right? But not with JetBlue. That if you fly JetBlue, they tell you you will jet happy. Happiness will be your experience. And so the search for happiness is nothing new. Even our founding fathers were on a quest for happiness. Remember the Declaration of Independence, that every American has the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of what? The pursuit of happiness. It seems like everyone is pursuing happiness. And can you blame them? Wouldn't you rather be happy than sad? Wouldn't you rather be happy than unhappy? I know I'd certainly rather be happy than depressed, of course. Everyone pursuing happiness. But the sad truth is happiness can be elusive. Happiness can be very difficult to find. Someone said happiness is like a butterfly. The more you chase it, the more it will elude you. Happiness can be elusive. In fact, many people will spend their entire life in the pursuit of happiness only to feel that they have never quite found it. But the good news is that God offers us something a million times better than happiness. God offers us joy. Joy. Of course, joy is more solid, more enduring. Joy is less erratic, less unpredictable. And someone might say, well, come on, Pastor Greg, aren't those just semantics? I mean, really, Joy and happiness, aren't they talking about the same things? Both are positive emotions. Both are delightful states of mind. Both are associated with laughter, with enjoyment, with pleasure. Both are preferred to sadness and to worry. What's the difference between happiness and joy? Well, there's a big difference. Happiness is based on happenings. That's why they share the same root word. Happiness is based on happenings. It's based on positive circumstances. It's based on favorable situations. But joy is a gift from God. Joy, at least biblical joy, is a gift of God. And so at Christmas, we talk about the season of joy. 
We sing joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. We tell each other, Merry Christmas. People say, Happy Holidays. Because this is supposed to be a season marked with joy. The wise men, when they were pursuing Jesus, and they saw the star, the Bible says that they were filled with exceeding great joy. But some people have a difficult time experiencing joy. And the sad truth is that the holiday season can be especially difficult for people to experience joy. How ironic that this which is to be a season of joy, can be a season that is very difficult for some people to experience joy. That maybe they have suffered tremendous loss at some point in their lives and it just, you know, it kind of casts a shadow over the whole season. With that in mind this morning, I want to consider joy. We're going to look at three truths about joy and then how to choose joy. We begin by looking at these three truths about joy. The first truth is that joy is a gift from God. Turn and tell your neighbor, joy is a gift from God. Again, we're talking about biblical joy. That biblical joy is a gift from God. Joy is a gift from God. It comes from being in God's presence and resting in His control. Psalm 16 and 11 says, In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And so the picture here is of a person who is in right relationship with God. A person who's in right relationship with God, they are enjoying God's presence, experiencing His purposes for their life, resting in the assurance that God is in control. This is a lasting, it is an eternal joy. A joy that comes from God. A joy that is a gift from God. A joy that involves the very presence of the Almighty. It's a lasting, eternal joy that is made possible through the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the joy that was given on Christmas Day. An angel appeared to the shepherds saying, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Notice that these are good tidings of great joy. So it is a positive message, a message declaring the Savior has been born. So great joy then is a gift from God. It's a gift that we receive. Now you may be in a position where you're having some financial difficulty. And maybe you could use a little extra Christmas cash. Now I could perhaps give you an illustration involving an envelope of crisp $100 bills. And let's just say, let's just suppose for the sake of imagination that I came here this morning with a a pocket that had an envelope containing crisp $100 bills. And I called you up on the platform and I said to you, now I know you've had difficult times over this past year and that you really could use some Christmas cash. And so I want to give you this gift of Christmas cash. If you were to take that Christmas cash, you could use it, right? Maybe you could pay some bills that were behind or maybe you could buy those gifts that you were putting off waiting for a windfall. The point is, in order for you to benefit from that gift, you would have to receive the gift, right? Otherwise, if you said, I mean, you could, you could maybe be a very proud person and you could say, well, no, that's a nice gesture, but really, you know, we've got this. I'll, I'll take out a third job, right? And then I would just put the envelope back in my pocket, wait for someone else who maybe wasn't so proud to receive the gift that they needed. 
Well, that's the whole point of Christmas. Jesus was a gift from God. The great light of the world. The the one who is Christmas joy. But in order to experience all the blessings and all the benefits of the Lord, we must receive the gift of Christ from the Father. We can be too proud and say, well, no, I've got this thing called life. I know it doesn't look like it. I know there are times when it looks like my life is coming apart at the seams, but really I do have this. Oh, really? And what will you do the day that you draw your last breath here on planet Earth? Will you be ready to stand before the God of all joy? Will you be ready to stand before the one of whom it is said in his presence is fullness of joy? In his right hand are pleasures forevermore. For you will only be ready to stand in his presence if you have received with gladness his joy, his gift of joy, the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to receive a gift in order for the transaction to be completed. Otherwise, it's like a Christmas gift that just remains under the tree wrapped with a beautiful bow. Useless. We have to receive the gift of Christmas joy, receive the gift of Christ to receive the joy that the Lord has for us. Jesus is our Savior, sent to save us from our sins. He's our Redeemer who satisfies the justice of God. He's our Good Shepherd who tenderly cares for our very lives. He is God's Christmas gift to the world. But like all gifts, He must be received in order to benefit from His blessings. Can you say Amen? So our experience of great joy begins when we receive God's Christmas gift the Lord Jesus Christ. It continues as we daily put our trust in Him. You see, we can experience abounding joy when we give our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ and then have a tough time walking in joy. And that's because if we get out from the will of God, we will find that we are in conflict with God's purposes for our life. And it's tough for us to have joy because we are bringing a state of discontentment into our lives. No longer contented in the Lord. No longer satisfied. Why? Well, because we're ignoring His Scriptures, ignoring His will for our lives, ignoring the promptings of His Spirit. We've received that first initial sense of Joy by being saved. But then we wonder why we are so miserable. Whenever we are cross-threaded with the purposes of God in our life, we'll have a hard time experiencing joy. You know, I used to think that life was like surfing. That some days were good, the sun was shining, the conditions were perfect, and we're just riding the wave into a lazy beach. And then other days were terrible. It was stormy. It was overcast. The water was choppy. And we were doing our best just to stay on the board. But I no longer think that life is that way. Instead, I think that life is like the two rails of a train track. And one rail are all the positive and helpful and good things that are happening. And the other rail are all the negative and miserable and difficult things that are happening. And guess what? They're always happening. They're always happening. There is no such thing as a day that is without sorrow. Because if you desire to be miserable and to have others commiserate with you, even on the best day, you can find something to complain about. And some people are gifted (laughs) at whining and complaining. Maybe you've known a few. Maybe you've been one. But the good news is that in the difficult days, in the days that are the hardest, that you can take yourself by the nap of the neck and turn your attention to focus on the blessings of God. 
Because even on the tough days, even on the difficult days, there are things to be grateful for. Things to be blessed about. Can you say amen? Experiencing joy on the bright and sunny days is easy, is it, is it not? But it's, experiencing joy on the dark and difficult days is a real challenge. But it is possible. Aren't you glad? It's possible to experience joy even when you feel like you've just gotten the rug jerked out from under you. How do I know? I know because the Bible's full of examples of people that have just had the rug jerked out from under them and yet they are rejoicing in the Lord. Think about Paul and Silas. I mean, here are two men who were charged with a crime and thrown in prison. What was the crime? Why, they had the audacity to tell people that God loved them and sent Jesus to die for their sins. Can you imagine? And because of that horrific sin in the eyes of Rome, they were arrested, they were thrown into prison, and they were chained next to Roman guards. That's how they did things back in those days. Facing possible execution. I want you to hear that. Paul and Silas didn't know, but that they were maybe going to be giving their lives for the gospel that very next morning. They could have been beaten to death. They could have been stoned. They could have been executed. And so at the midnight hour, they were griping and complaining, right? At the midnight hour, they were saying, oh, woe is me. Why in the world did I ever go into ministry? No one loves me. Everybody hates me. I think I'll go eat some worms. <laughs> no! What were they doing? They were singing and praising and worshiping God at the midnight hour. For they felt like not only is the gospel good news, but it's good news that we have been deemed worthy of suffering for the gospel. What an honor! What a privilege! Well, if Paul and Silas could worship God and give Him praise when they were chained next to smelly Roman guards, facing possible execution, not knowing what the morning would bring, we can worship God as well. Can you say amen? Or think about Jesus. Jesus was facing the brutal death of crucifixion. He knew what was in store. He knew the barbarism that was about to be yielded and, uh, and what he would suffer. He knew the pain. He knew that they were about to drive spikes through his feet and through his wrists. He knew that he was about to be beaten beyond human recognition. That his back would be laid open like a bunch of ribbons of sausage. That it would be his will to complete the will of the Father that would keep him alive long enough to give his life on the cross. But worse than that, he knew in his pristine and perfect holiness that he was about to bear the sins of mankind. That he was about to face separation from the Father. When he would quote from the psalmist hanging on the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He was in great agony of spirit in the Garden of Gethsemane when the Bible tells us that he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. Now, friends, I've experienced distress in my life, and I'm sure you have as well, but I've never been so stressed that I was sweating blood. And yet Jesus did. But the Bible tells us that yet for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He had joy in the midst of adversity. Well, if Jesus had such joy, we can too. Experiencing joy in the midst of deep and difficult valleys is possible. But it's not a matter of positive thinking. Hear me. Experiencing God's joy in the midst of adversity is not a matter of positive thinking. It's not even a matter of ignoring the ugliness of your circumstances. 
We face some pretty raw, ragged, ugly circumstances in this life. It's not a matter of ignoring those. It's not a matter of lying to yourself or lying to your friends. Experiencing joy in the midst of trouble is a matter of faith. Exercising faith. And that doesn't mean using faith like a lucky charm. doesn't mean using faith like a rabbit's foot to bring about the changes that you want. Actually, it means just the opposite of that. Just the opposite. It means putting your complete trust in God and believing that He will do the right thing. That He'll do the right thing. He will do the right thing. You see, if you have enough faith to believe in God for your salvation, you have enough faith in God for anything. Anything at all. Anything. The greatest miracle is salvation. Guess what? If you're saved, you've already evidenced you've got great faith. Now, expressing that great faith simply means that you bring your petitions before the Lord, you leave it in His hands, and you rest in the understanding that He will do that which is best, that which is right, and you rest in it. Can you say amen? Amen. With that in mind, we need to recall that joy then is a gift of God. And then number two, a second truth, joy is supported by truth. Joy is supported by truth. When it comes to experiencing joy, there are three truths that promote joy. The first, God is good. Say it with me. God is good. One of my favorite passages, perhaps yours as well, Romans 8.28 And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. I want you to notice here that God is causing all things to work together for good. Notice it doesn't say, and God causes some things. God causes a few things. God causes select things. That's not what it says, does it? It says, God causes all things, all things to work together for good for those who are the called according to His purpose. So God is causing all things to work together for good. And it's not surprising because we know that God is good. God is good. That's what the scriptures tell us. Psalm 119 and 68, you are good and do good. Psalm 73 and 1, God is good to his people. Psalm 145 and 9, the Lord is good to all. Psalm 25 and 7, he is good and upright. So God is good. It means you can trust him. You can rest in the fact that He's going to do that which is good. Why? Because it's His very nature. He is good. Good and upright is the Lord. God is good. It is the first truth that promotes joy. The second truth that promotes joy is that God is faithful. Say that one with me. God is faithful. Say it again. God is faithful. Now say it like you believe it. God is faithful. Faithful and true is one of His names. Our God is faithful. God causes all things to work together for good, for the good of His people. Why? Because He's faithful. You see, God is not some distant and detached deity, unaware of what's going on in your life, ignoring you. Expecting you somehow to to figure it all out on your own. God is at work in the lives of His children. How do I know that? I know that because He is faithful. He's faithful. In fact, Philippians 2 and 13 says, It is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work, 
for His good pleasure. He's at work in your life. You're praying for your loved ones. He's at work in their lives. may not look like it. You may not see it. But He's at work. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. You see, the support of our faith is not in shallow, self-help, positive thinking, which is on one day and off the next. The support of our faith is in faith-filled, biblical thinking. Biblical thinking. We don't need positive thinking. We need biblical thinking. Biblical thinking that reminds us that God is good and God is faithful. But then there's a third truth that promotes joy. God is present. Amen. Isn't that good news? That God is present. Psalm 42 and 5 says, Why are you in despair, O my soul, and why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him for the help of His presence. He's faithful. He's good. And He's with you. His presence is with you. Isaiah 41.10 says, Do not fear, for I am with you. Zephaniah 3.17, The Lord your God is in your midst. Psalm 46 and 1, God is your, your refuge and strength, your very present help in trouble. Isaiah 43 and 2, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Matthew 28 and 20, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Psalm 23 and 4, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Praise God. God is with us. He's with us. The Lord is with us. Overseeing our lives. Demonstrating His goodness. Demonstrating His faithfulness. He's with us. Jesus said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is with us. You need to let that sink down into your mind. Because in this world, we are detached from each other. Are we not? We are united by Christ. We are blood brothers in the Lord Jesus. Royal blood is flowing through us. We have been baptized into Christ. And now we share that common fellowship, that family fellowship. We are in the eternal family of God, adopted by the Lord. And yet, there is a sense in which we are separate from each other. Right? That when you die... Even if you're surrounded by family and friends, one person's going to take their last breath. You. And then you'll awaken in the presence of God Almighty. Wonderful. So there is a sense when even though we are united in spirit, we are alone. Let that settle on you for a moment. Because it is against the blackness of that thought that the brilliance of God's truth comes shining through. You're not really alone. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. The Lord your God is in your midst. He is at your very right hand. God is with you. So even though you may feel alone, and even though physically you are created as an individual person, the beauty of this truth is that you're never, ever truly alone. God is with you. Can you say amen? He is with you. How many of you have experienced that in the dark nights of the soul? That He's with you. He's with you. Amen. He's with you. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Amen? When the waters of the flood were threatening the world, God was with Noah. When the fire of the oven was blazing hot, 
God was with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When the Red Sea was blocking the way, God was with the children of Israel. When the giant was defying the armies of Israel, God was with David. When the Syrian armies had surrounded Dothan, God was with Elisha. When the hungry lions were threatening their very lives, God was with Daniel and delivered them. How do you know they were hungry? Because as soon as the king's servants were thrown in, they were ripped limb from limb. But he was with Daniel. God is with us. When Moses died, the word of the Lord came to Joshua saying, Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And on that beautiful night so long ago, uh, outside of Bethlehem, The angel reminded the shepherds that God was with them. He hadn't forgotten them. He was sending them a Savior who is Christ the Lord. You see, friends, in this life, you may face trials that don't make sense. In fact, you probably will. You may face trials where you feel that God has abandoned you. And you may be tempted to think that God doesn't care. In those times, your faith must be supported. You see, your faith is not supported by shallow, self-help, positive thinking. Your faith is not supported by lying to yourself or trying to make sense of it all. Trying to figure it out. Your faith is supported by the Word of God which declares, God is good. God is faithful. God is present. And God is working all things together for your good. For He is at work in you to will and to do of His good pleasure. Amen. Praise God. So three truths about joy. Joy is a gift of God. Joy is supported by truth. And number three, joy is a daily decision. Joy is a daily decision. Decision. And so we continue in Psalm 42, now looking at verse 11. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise Him, the help of my countenance and my God. Have you ever noticed that you can recognize despair in the very countenance of a person? Have you ever noticed that? That you'll see someone and they don't even have to open their mouth for you to be able to look at them and go, oh my, they're going through some deep waters. Despair is all over their countenance. In fact, we've got a name for it, that your countenance has fallen because despair can be seen in the actual expression of a person's face. Their countenance has fallen. Their demeanor visibly marked by sadness. Well, in this text, the writer is in despair and even his countenance needs help. And so he says, God is the help of my countenance. That God can restore your joy in such a way that it's even reflected on your face. But I want you to notice that in that passage, the psalmist also makes a decision to choose joy. Think about it. It's not just a spontaneous eruption of emotion, but it's linked to a decision. The psalmist makes a conscious decision to choose joy. And so he begins by challenging his current state of mind. Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? So he recognizes his sadness, his depression. He recognizes his melancholy. Recognizes how he's feeling. Admits that he's in despair. Admits that he's sorrowful. And then he challenges that state of mind. Says to himself, hope in the Lord. 
praise Him. He is the help of my countenance. In other words, God will lift my countenance. God will raise my spirits. Clearly, the psalmist is determining to be joyful. He has decided to jettison sorrow, to jettison depression, to jettison despair, and to choose joy. To choose joy. You see, when the storms of life come, they can be severe and they can be difficult and they can make it almost impossible to choose joy. And that is why joy must be a daily decision. You see, when it comes to choosing joy, it's not a one and done. It is not a one and done. And and the fact that you wrestle to maintain your joy doesn't mean you have a lack of faith. And it certainly doesn't mean you're spiritually immature. You know what it means? It means you're alive. It means you're breathing. You're not shaking gold dust off your feet yet because you haven't made it to the other side. As long as you're in this world, Jesus said, you will have trouble. But take heart, for I have overcome the world, He said. When you have to struggle to maintain your joy, it doesn't mean that you're spiritually immature. It means you're alive. You're alive. In fact, I would say if you never have to struggle to maintain your joy, maybe you're not a target of Satan. And maybe you need to re-examine your life. Amen. Some of the greatest uh, leaders in the Christian church over the last couple thousand years have been men and women who have struggled with feelings of depression from time to time. Why? Because Satan had his crosshairs on them. And he was firing away every chance he got. doesn't mean you lack faith. It means you're alive. So it's not a one and done. It's a decision that you make, but you don't simply forget it. It's a daily decision. Sometimes, listen, sometimes it's an hour by hour by hour decision. Those of you who have been through difficult days know what I'm talking about. We face those times where I pray and give it over to the Lord. 45 minutes later, I'm back on my knees giving it back to God. Why? Lack of faith? No. But because the storm was raging around me and my mind was in turmoil and the enemy was lying to me and I was lying to myself. And I had to push against all of that. And I had to remind myself that there's a God in heaven who hears and answers prayer. And I had to remind myself that God is good. And remind myself that God is faithful. And remind myself that God is working all things together for my good. Remind myself that when I cannot trace His hand, I can trust His heart. And say with Job, though He slay me, yet will I trust Him. Yet will I serve Him. Sometimes maintaining your joy is an hour by hour decision. Those who would be joyful in the day of trial must choose joy. They must recognize their sadness and then having acknowledged their feelings of despair, They must choose to put their faith in God. Don't put your faith in your faith. Put your faith in God. Can you say amen? Of course, that's easy to say, isn't it? It's anything but easy to do. Anything but easy to do. In addressing this difficult choice, The late Martin Lloyd-Jones writes these words. He says, quote, The main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself. Preach to yourself. Question yourself. You must say to your soul, Why art thou downcast? What business have you to be disquieted? You must say to yourself, hope thou in God. End quote. Isn't that good? 
got to challenge yourself and say, hold on a minute. Why are you downcast? Put your hope in God. For yet will I praise Him. Those who would be joyful in the day of trial must choose joy. But how do you do that? How do you choose joy in the midst of despair? Well, there are two steps for choosing joy I want you to consider. The first, desire joy. Desire joy. Just desire it. You say, well, that seems kind of obvious. Well, not really. Because sometimes people don't want joy. They don't want it. They don't want joy. Especially if they believe that they've been treated unjustly. Especially if they feel like life has not been fair. Maybe they've been passed over for a promotion. Maybe they've been betrayed by a loved one or by a leader that they looked up to. Maybe they're just not ready for joy because they're enjoying feeling sorry for themselves. I won't ask for a show of hands, but this is the human condition. Amen? We like feeling sorry for ourselves. It's part of our self-centered natures. We want others to join us when we throw a pity party. I'm feeling sorry for myself. Come join the party and let's commiserate together. (laughs) Amen. We've all been there, haven't we? And as long as we're breathing, we all have the danger of stepping back in that hole. So we need to be reminded not to. Most of us can find plenty of reasons to feel sorry for ourselves. Because life gives us plenty of reasons, does it not? Self-pity, though, is a bottomless well. And the longer you are in it, the harder it will be for you to climb out of it. And listen, self-pity will not change your situation. Realize that. Self-pity will not change your situation. And so self-pity is a waste of your time and it's a waste of your energy. Now, I'm not saying that when the, you know, wind gets knocked out from, uh, let's mix metaphors. I'm not saying when the wind gets, you know, taken out of your sails or when the rug gets jerked out from under you, that it's wrong for you to have an initial sense of sadness and despair and even self-pity. That's natural. That's normal. But what I am saying is it's dangerous to stay there. Don't stay there. You owe it to yourself to get out of that as quick as you can and to acknowledge it and say, yeah, this is a, this is an unpredictable matter that I find myself in. But you know what? It didn't take God by surprise. And so, yeah, it did take me by surprise and I'm, I'm kind of recoiling from it. But I can take comfort in knowing that God's not surprised and that He is going to see me through this. But don't allow yourself, while you're sitting on the edge of that well of self-pity, dangling your feet in the water, don't allow yourself to dive into it and become immersed by it. Because you'll find that it's difficult to get out of it once you're in it. Life is too short to waste even a day on self-pity. I I, I want you to hear this. Today is the only today that you will ever experience. Because if you live till tomorrow, guess what? That'll be today. This is it. Until you go to be with Jesus if you're ready. Isn't life too short to waste any of it with self-pity? When you could experience joy. You could experience full joy in the presence of the Lord. So isn't it better to desire joy over self-pity? Isn't it better to be joyful rather than remorseful? So that's where it begins. You have to desire joy. And sometimes that means just admitting to yourself, you know, I've been enjoying this self-pity. But it's not getting me anywhere and it's certainly not changing my circumstance. I would rather desire joy. 
and make it make that the beginning of the decision. And then secondly, encourage yourself in the Lord. Encourage yourself in the Lord. King David was great at this. The Bible tells us that there was a time when he and his men were at war with neighboring tribes and they had been away from their home, which they were making at the time in the village of Ziklag. But when they came back to Ziklag, guess what? They found that the Assyrians had raided the town while they were gone. They had burned their houses to the ground and they had taken their families captive. They were gone. So there's David and he's in charge and his men are despondent and they are in despair and David himself is weeping. And then he starts hearing the scuttlebutt around the campfires. Let's kill David. This is his fault. Let's stone him. But the Bible tells us that at this point when David was exceedingly sorrowful and he knew that some of his men wanted to take his life, that crying out in tears, David pulled himself together and he encouraged himself in the Lord his God. He encouraged himself. Sometimes you've got to be your own coach. Sometimes you've got to be the one who gives yourself your pep talk based on the Scriptures, right? So what did that look like? Well, it doesn't tell us exactly what it looked like, but I've got some idea. Because this was a pattern for David. Before David was crowned king, when he was just a shepherd boy, and the Israeli armies were lined up across from the Philistines, and there was a certain giant there by the name of Goliath, that was so big and so awesome in his stature that he was intimidating the entire army. No one wanted to come out and take him on. And so he was defying the God of Israel and he was blaspheming his holy name. And here comes little shepherd boy David. He's got a a bag full of goodies that his father has sent for his elder brothers who are serving in the army. So there's some cheese and some figs and all sorts of good things in there. And He gets to the battlefield and he hears this uncircumcised Philistine defying the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the army is just doing nothing about it and King Saul is huddled in his tent. And little shepherd boy David is like, what is wrong with you guys? Let me at him. Right? And King Saul looks at him and he says, well, what are you going to do? Who are you, little shepherd boy? And David, encouraging himself in the Lord, begins to recount how God has delivered him in times past. He says, my God has delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear. Certainly he will deliver me from this uncircumcised Philistine. David goes out, five smooth smooth stones. It takes one. One little smooth stone in the hand of God Almighty. It meets its mark. It fells the giant. And to add insult to injury, David takes the giant's sword and decapitates him with his own sword. God has a sense of humor, does he not? You say, Pastor Greg, that's kind of gruesome. Yeah, but it's funny. (laughs) It is funny. (laughs) With his own sword. His own sword. So perhaps... On this day, David was reminding himself of all of those times past when the Lord had been with him. And might I suggest to you that that's one key for releasing joy into your life is reminding yourself of how God has been with you in the past. And that there have been times when you've been in the deep waters. There have been times when you felt like the fires of the furnace had been turned up seven times. But the Lord has been with you. And He will be with you yet again. How do I know that? For He's promised to never leave you nor forsake you. And that it is God who is within you to do, to work and to will according to His good pleasure. He's already working all things together for the good of those who love Him, who are called according to His purpose. So Christmas is a time of great joy. The angels, the shepherds experienced good news of great joy. The wise men, when they came, they saw the star and it says they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. 
Jesus, the great light who brings great joy to our lives. But if we're going to experience that joy, we have to first receive the gift of joy, Jesus Christ. And then choose daily the gift of joy. Reminding ourselves that He's with us, that He's good, and that He's faithful. Amen? If you're here today and you haven't received the gift of God's joy in Jesus Christ, I just want to encourage you to do that today. Don't let another day pass, but that you would call out upon the Lord. And just in your own words, say, Father God, I'm a sinner. No one has to tell me that. I know it. My conscience has already condemned me. I'm a sinner. A sinner in need of a Savior. And I call out upon Jesus, your gift of joy, the Savior that you sent to die on the cross for my sin. And I just ask that you would forgive me of my sin and come into my life to not only be my Savior, but to be my Lord. The Bible tells us that if we will do that, that the Lord will receive us, that He will never cast us aside, that if we will call upon the name of the Lord, we shall be saved. Amen. Believe in our hearts that God raised Him from the dead. Confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord, that we'll be saved. It'll be the best Christmas you've ever experienced. Amen. And for those of us who already know the Lord, let's walk in joy by reminding us that He's good, He's faithful, and He's with us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank You today for that great gift of joy. We ask, Lord, that You would help us to choose joy each and every day, and that in choosing joy, that it will brim over out of our lives in such a way that people will see the joy that we have, oftentimes in spite of the circumstances in which we find ourselves. And that joy and that sense of peace will be winsome and they will desire to experience life in the same way. And then, Father, I pray that you would put an encouraging word in our mouths to be able to share with them that Jesus is the reason for our joy. And now, Lord, as we take the time to return to you a portion of that which you've blessed us with, we ask that you would take these offerings and multiply them, give us wisdom to know how best to invest them. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you give to the